Well, as many of you know, we uh, together on Sunday mornings are reading through the book of Acts. And the scripture tells us uh, to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, or another way to put it, do not neglect the public reading of Scripture. So we're in public, aren't we? Okay, and we're gathered together to worship together publicly, and uh, so we will make sure we don't neglect that, that we do devote ourselves to doing just that. And we've been reading through um, the book of Acts, and this morning our passage is in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Uh, I ask you to join uh, with me there as you look at that. If you don't have a copy of uh, God's Word, we have some copies back on these shelves. And if you just forgot yours, grab one of those and borrow for this morning. You're going to need it now, and you're going to leave it here in a few minutes. And if you don't have one, uh, you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that uh, for yourself as a gift from us to you. So here we are. We are um, in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, and beginning in verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for, Troa, he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And we had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending the charge of Barnabas and Saul, the elders. What a great passage of scripture here. We see Saul gets back in the game and he came to know the Lord. He got a little excited and was just debating with everyone. And the Lord sends him off uh, to his hometown. And he basically is, is put on the shelf for many, many years. And then when it's time, the Lord puts on Barnabas' heart to go and, and collect Saul, or, or who became Paul. And, uh, um, and, and then you see this, this promise of this famine. And this is actually uh, referred to all throughout the Scripture, especially uh, in the letter to the church of Corinth, as Paul encourages them to make good on their promise to help the church in Judea, to help Jerusalem church who was uh, in trouble because of this famine. And they called all the believers all over the known world at the time to help out. And you see that happening here in the book of Acts, and you see it throughout the New Testament, just what God is doing in the life of Saul, who became Paul, in the life of um, uh, churches outside of Jerusalem, and in even the life of the church in Jerusalem, that God is at work. Aren't you glad God's at work? And he's at work here in, in our midst as well, in the church here at Grace Bible Church, and churches all over. They're part of the greater church here in our, in our area, in the Brazosport area. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are at work. We thank you that you're at work here, Lord, in Antioch, and, 
And at, at this time, there wasn't a whole lot of the gospel going out to Gentiles. There was some, but here we, we begin to see this shift in, uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, which is the outline of the book of Acts. And we begin to see the gospel going out into the Gentile nations and having major impact where many believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and were born again and brought into your family. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you by your grace that you have brought us into your family, that the word went out and went out all over that known world so much that it continued to spread around even the world today. And we're recipients of this mission that the church is about, making disciples by preaching the gospel. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the life of, uh, of Saul who became Paul and uh, Lord, how he got back in the game here, so to speak. And uh, you began to use him greatly uh, to preach the gospel, as we'll see here as we continue in the book of Acts. And Lord, we, we thank you for um, those in the early church who cared for each other, not only in their own local church, but churches who were struggling all around them, uh, specifically here, the, the church of Jerusalem that was struggling because of the famine. And Lord, we thank you to put it on the hearts of your people, uh, Lord, that we're, we're just a part of the bigger picture of the body of Christ. Lord, I pray you'd help us remember that as we uh, sacrificially give uh, to those who are in need, who are brothers and sisters in, in our own community here, uh, uh, in our nation and around the world. Lord, help us be faithful to be about uh, the bigger uh, church and about the mission of the bigger church and spreading the gospel throughout all the lands to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Lord, thanks for the privilege to, to participate in this great, great endeavor empowered by your spirit and we pray this in jesus name amen well this time we're dismissed for um children's worship so up through the fifth grade you are dismissed now to go and study the word of god with your teachers and classmates over here miss ashley has a sign that says grace kids if you're not to reading uh age yet and even though kids is spelled wrong um don't just ignore that okay that was probably jared's idea with the z because it looks cool where's you at jared he snuck out on me. Um, oh, there he is. He's hiding back there. I'm mean, usually sitting right here. Now you're hiding by Helen, huh? Uh, you think Helen's going to protect you from spelling kids wrong? Yeah. Well, and the rest of us kids in here, kids at heart, you have to excuse me a little, little water here. My allergies like set in big time yesterday. We, Josh and I went to a football game at Stephen F. Austin yesterday, and and the piney woods were not good to me. Um, man, I was just dripping and sneezing. And Joshua kept asking, you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm on me all right, man. I'm grabbing napkins and anything I can get my hands on. It was so the aftermath of that. My throat's a little scratchy here this morning, so bear with me. Well, I encourage you all to turn to the book of Philippians. Here we are in chapter 4. Some of you have been gone. You've been traveling. We're glad you're back. And you're not surprised that we're still in the book of Philippians, I'm sure. But we're getting close to being done. This is actually um, the 17th, it's only the 17th message in Philippians. And this is nothing compared to um, uh, John and Genesis, uh, some of those hundred, hundred or so sermons in those. Um, but Philippians, here we are. And the, the, uh, this, we've been studying this book here and this great letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi and his great dear friends there that he had spent much time with. Actually, he had visited them three times by the time he reads, writes this letter from Rome in prison. And uh, we, we've entitled the whole series, Finding Joy in Christ Alone, because throughout this epistle you see this call to rejoice, to be joyful in, 
in the midst of very difficult circumstance in Paul's life, and even the church of Philippi is going through different struggles themselves, but he encourages them to be joyful. So this, we're finding joy in Christ alone. That's what he keeps pointing to, to Christ. And last week, um, we began this two-part sermon, um, which is entitled Stand Firm. Last week was Stand Firm Part 1, and uh, this is Stand Firm Part 2 this week. All right, and it really is verses 1 through 9, and, and, and um, we were challenged by God uh, through Paul to stand firm in last week in four areas. And it was based on, you see there in ch- chapter 4, verse 1, the therefore. So he always asks what the therefore is there for, right? And it's pointing back, it's pointing back to all that he taught them in chapter 3. We won't go all over, over that all again this, this morning, but in the end of chapter 3, he reminds them of their identity in Christ, that they're citizens of heaven, all right? So they're in Christ, that's who they are, and they have, a, not only they have an identity, they have a destiny that one day the Lord will come and return for them. And he's given them hope through this. In, in, in spite of all the things that are going on, in spite of the false teachers that are trying to creep into the church of Philippi, which we looked at in chapter 3, um, he encourages them that you have a new identity and you have a destiny to be with the Lord forever. And based on that, therefore... He calls them in verse 1 to stand firm. And you see that. And then he gives them these, these six imperatives in areas that they need to stand firm by the grace of God, by Christ in them, by their new identity, by their new direction, their destiny, going to be with Christ forever. Because of that, he calls them to stand firm or in view of that. And he, they were challenged, and we were challenged last week, to stand firm in unity, to stand firm in rejoicing, to stand firm with a gentle spirit and to stand firm in peace. And that took us through, through verse 7. And this morning in our passage, we're, we're going to be challenged to stand firm in two other areas. So let's read those two verses that finish this section 1 through 9 um, this morning. And then we'll pray and ask God to help us understand this. And then we'll dive in. There in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we we are again at your mercy to understand um, what is written here, uh, to understand, first of all, what you were trying to communicate to this church in Philippi through Paul. And then, once we understand that, Lord, then we can understand what you are trying to say to us. And not only do we want to understand this, Lord, but we want to allow your word to transform our lives. uh, To to renew our minds uh, so that we see a difference in our lives. To change us from the inside out. Lord, we need you to do that. Uh, If you don't move, if that doesn't happen, Lord, this is just an academic exercise. And Lord, we don't want an academic exercise. We're your church. We're your people. We're the body of Christ. We're your sons and daughters who... You sent your son to die in our place that we might be redeemed, to be made right with you, to be changed forever. And Lord, we we pray that you would do that this morning. You would um, change our our thoughts, uh, our attitudes, and our actions more in line to your dear beloved son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we, we dig into this passage this morning, I want us to consider an event in Peter's life. That, that has a lot to do with this passage, what the main emphasis here is in this passage, just as an event in Peter's life. Um, and in Mark, 
chapter 8. You, you, you can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. I'm just going to kind of overview it. But in Mark chapter 8, specifically verses 27 through 33, Jesus is asking disciples, and you find it in the other um, gospels as well, but he's asking disciples, who do people say I am? And maybe you remember this. If not, I'm going to remind you. And if you do remember, we're going to remind, be reminded of what happened. So he asks, who do people say I am? And the disciples start throwing, well, you're Elijah. Well, you're John the Baptist. Or you're a great prophet. And, and they just throw, throw out these things that people say that Jesus is. But then Jesus turns and makes it very personal. He says, well, but who do you, who do you say I am? Who, who do you all, who've been walking with me for almost three years, who do you say that I am? Now, we only have what one person said we don't know what the rest of the guys said and maybe none of them had a chance because peter being ever bold peter jumps out just like he jumps out in the boat he jumps out he's usually the first one to say anything and sure enough peter says you are the christ the son of the living god and one of the other uh, gospel accounts in matthew jesus says blessed are you simon son of john or simon bar jonah for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you but my father in heaven you're right. You got it right, Peter. That can you imagine Peter hearing these words from Jesus? Because many times Peter, Peter got rebuked by Jesus. Uh, Peter, gosh, put that, pull that foot out of your mouth again, would you please? And uh, so he doesn't this time. He, he gets praised. You're exactly right. Of course, it was that God revealed that truth to him, that he was a Christ son of the living God. And, and Peter's got to be at the height of feeling good. I mean, I finally got it right. This is an important thing that I got right. And then right after that, Jesus begins to tell them that he must suffer and die. Now picture this. Peter's feeling great about everything's going on. He's just said, he's, Jesus said, you got it right. And Jesus says, and I'm going to die. And then you find right after that, Peter, it says, rebuked Jesus. I don't know if it's ever a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Would you say there's ever a good idea, ever a good idea, or a good time to rebuke Jesus? Never. But he rebukes. It says he rebuked Jesus. Unbelievable. I mean, here he is. You're the son of the living God. And he says, no way, you're wrong, Jesus. And then look what Jesus does in Mark 8.33. But Jesus, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, just, just a little hint here, if you rebuke Jesus, you'll probably get rebuked by him. Um, but look what he says. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Notice what Jesus says the problem is. Not his boldness, not his toughness, not his ability to, to proclaim that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. But notice what he says. Notice what it says. It says, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. It was what Peter was setting his mind on, what his thoughts were dwelling on. They weren't of God's plans, and they weren't of God, but they were on man's plans. And this is huge. The issue was Peter's thinking. There was a problem with his mind is what Jesus is saying. You've got your mind in the wrong place. Well, how important is it that we set our minds or we, we dwell on certain things, we think on certain things, how important is this to the direction of our lives? Just with this example, we would all agree this is extremely important, what we set our minds on, what our minds dwell on 
has a tremendous impact in our lives. We also see this throughout other passages of Scripture. Specifically, this is probably the strongest one in all of Scripture, Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Wow. Our mind is so direct, so directly correlated to, to who we are at the core of our being is what it's saying. We're going to look at this later, how the mind and the heart are sometimes used synonymously. But it's a part of our core of our being. The, what's in our mind, the way that we think, is equated to almost who we are. And here specifically who we are. We also see this through other passages of Scripture, and I'm just going to give you a couple more. Ephesians 4.23, and that you be renewed of the spirit of your mind. And then in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Obviously, Scripture talks about the mind and the importance of the mind, the importance of the things we set our mind on, the importance of things that we think about. It's directly correlated to our life as a whole. We all need encouragement in this area, I would, I would imagine. I know I do. Uh, I need encouragement in this area, what I think about, what my mind is set upon. We can allow our minds to be paralyzed. We can allow our minds to, to bring despair. We can allow our minds to be bitter and bitterness is set in. We can allow our minds to, to bring depression in our life and we just begin to dwell and think and set our mind on things that aren't of what God would want us to set our minds. We can, we can allow our minds to, to bring arrogance in our life and pride. All these things based upon what we set our mind on, what we think about, what we dwell on. Well, God through Paul wants us to set our minds on the right things, which will lead to right attitudes, as we'll see in this passage, and right actions in the midst of times of victory and in the midst of times of difficulty. As we set our mind on the things that God would have us to set our mind on, we'll be surprised at what happens with our attitudes and actions. Well, let's now look at these verses, verses 8 and 9, and, and be challenged in these two areas in which to stand firm, continuing our, our, this passage, one, verses 1 through 9. And, and our hope is that as, as we do this, we'll be able to glorify God in a greater way. We'll enjoy Him as we glorify Him forever. So let's begin by, by making sure we see these two verses in their context. We've already seen the big, bigger context. He's talking about standing firm in certain areas, and these are two other, other areas. But there's some other things going on in this passage. And, and, I, and I think there's a, a key phrase here that tie, ties this, this verse into the context better than anything else. Um, first of all, just let me point this out in, in verse 8. It begins with the word, finally. You do know what that means when a preacher says that, right? You're in for about another 30 minutes. That's what it means, right? And you're probably thinking, or some people would say, finally means absolutely nothing when a preacher says that. But you may think the same thing about Paul, because look, he says finally, and then he goes all the way down through verse 23. All right, there wasn't finally. Um, but uh, Paul, however, he writes, he does mean something here. This word can also mean furthermore. Okay, it's, 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 it's a tie-in to what he's been talking about. At last, or, or one last piece of advice. As J.B. Phillips, it's an old paraphrase, a guy from England. Um, it says, one last piece of advice. Here it is. And that's it's just a tying in. It is in some ways a fight. It's, it's near the end of his letter. So what is it here at the, it, near the end of this letter to these dear friends in Philippi that God through Paul wants to get across to him? What, what is he trying to get across? Well, there's two imperatives or commands in, in these two verses. 
Uh, the first one is found in you know, the end of verse 8. It says to dwell or think on these things. And then in verse 9, it says practice or do these things. Those are the two commands in these two verses. And just a hint, if you ever want to understand what a passage is saying, if it has an imperative in it, that's the main point. And everything else goes to really to support those points. But there's also, this is in context. We want to see why is he commanding them uh, these things. What, what is it that he wants us to see uh, concerning, and, and, and the Philippians to see concerning our lives with these two commands. Why does he do this? Well, look back with verse 7 with me. Look at the phrase at the end of verse 7, and the peace of God, all right, which surpasses all comprehension, that's in explaining the peace of God, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now look at the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. You think peace has anything to do with these two commands? You bet. It's sandwiched. I mean, the two commands are sandwiched between peace. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, and the peace of God will be with you. And in the middle of that are these two commands, these last two things to stand firm in. And I don't want us to miss this and miss the context. So he's concerned about these believers he's writing to here in the, at the Church of Philippi about having peace and the, the, or having the peace of God fill their lives. To, to be the, the, a main aspect of their life. The, the assurance that no matter what is going on around me, God is with me and he's in control. That's peace. Doesn't mean that everything around you is at peace. It doesn't mean that your circumstances necessarily are at peace. It doesn't mean the world around you is at peace, but you're at peace. Why? Because the God of all the earth is in control, and he's with you. The God of peace. That's the characteristics and attribute of God. Remember, these people are living in a time when the Roman Empire is dominating the, the known world, and Christians aren't looked upon very nicely at this time, in this, in this time of the world either. Uh, case in point, Paul is where? He's in prison in Rome. Just to remind us what, where they, they find themselves. It's a, it's a colony of Rome. It's, it's a province of Rome, Philippi is. Um, and they're under Roman rule. And again, Christians are not looked upon very well. So this is where he finds himself. These are where the believers find themselves when he writes this. And he wants to assure these believers that in spite of their difficult circumstances, that they can have the personal peace of God in their lives because God is in control. And that's why he gives these two imperatives. So the result will be the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And the peace of God will be with them. You see how that ties in? That's why it's so important. Uh, and and just, just to bring it down to where we are today. I don't want to bring it down, but bring it up maybe to where you are today. I understand in this room, there's people who are in difficult circumstances right now. I know some of those personally, and some of them I have no idea, but I guarantee you there's other people in here who are in different, find themselves in difficult place today for whatever reason. And I want you to know, so you don't miss this, that God through Paul wants you to know that the God of peace is with you, and he will be with you. Does that mean everything around you will be at peace? No, but you can be at peace. Because the God of peace is in you and he is with you. And it may that encourage your heart today as we walk down through here, maybe through these imperatives. And it kinda, it's kind of funny. And Peter does this too a couple times. But people going through very difficult times.
times, often uh, people just, well, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm so sorry you're going through this. There's nothing wrong with saying that. They put their arm around them. They need to put their arm around them. They need just to be there during those difficult times. But sometimes people need some truth to walk through that. And there's a time where you've got to bring truth. And there's, sometimes you need to bring instruction. And, 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 and I'm so glad that, that Paul isn't like many uh, counselors in our world today. And I'm so all counselors this way. But many counselors in the world today that you go in and you, 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 you go in for counsel. And they say, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I'm paying you to tell me what I need to think. It's the problem. I mean, how many here today? I need help. What do you, and I understand sometimes what they're trying to do. They're trying to get this person. But, but sometimes that's the whole thing. And they came in because they don't know. They need an answer. And, and I'm so glad that even in this difficult time that Church of Philippi finds itself in, and Paul finds himself in, that he doesn't go, well, what do you guys think? He tells them. And some people say, oh, that's getting dangerous. He's telling them what to think and what to do. Yeah, he is. Now, obviously, I have a choice to do that in the power of the, power, the, power of the Holy Spirit. That, the power of the Holy Spirit, they can do that. But sometimes we just need somebody to come along with some truth to give us some encouragement. Okay, what do I do in the midst of this circumstance? And, and Paul's going to say that that's directly related to the peace of God in your life. At least experiencing the peace of God in your life. So let's, let's, let's look at this. Let's begin with verse 8 here. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So it's in these words here in verse 8 that we find the first of two areas uh, that we're called to stand firm in, at least what we're going to look at this morning. The first one is stand firm in your thoughts. Stand firm in your thoughts. You can put stand firm in your mind. You can stand thir- put down stand firm in your thinking. I just picked thoughts because it's the first thought that came to mind. All right? So stand firm in your thoughts. This, this imperative command is, is found here in the last part, actually, of verse 8. Look at the last part of, of verse 8, the last phrase dwell on these things some of your translations say think on these things some of your translations say meditate on these things probably if you maybe nobody has that one it's a it's the holman christian standard version now, we have a few people i think maybe use that but it says meditate and the word there dwell in the new American standard think is to think deeply to ponder maybe it's a word we don't use very much anymore it's just it's to, to, to roll it over it's like it's like the the, the cow chewing the cud, right? I'm not going to get graphic here. But it's, you're, just, you're just rolling it over and over and again. And the implications of what you're thinking about, rolling it over. How does that apply to my life? I'm going to think about it some more. I'm gonna think, it's not just that this thought comes in and then it goes out. It's a pondering. It's, it's a dwelling on. And I like this. why I like the numerical standards here or even the meditate to dwell on. It, it, this phrase here, this to, to dwell on, think on, is also a present active imperative. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's present. I mean, it's being continual. It's continue to happen on and on and on. It's not a one-time thing. It's active. You're doing something, and it is an imperative command. So we are to continually dwell on these things. That's the command. It's an ongoing part of our life as believers. It's an ongoing part of what Paul is calling these church, this church at Philippi to do, to keep dwelling on these things. Well, what things? What things are they to keep dwelling on, to, to ponder on? Well, look at the first part of uh, the verse. Paul describes these, these, these things um, with six specific phrases. That's the rest of the verse, the first part. Um, look with me at the first phrase here in verse 8. It says, whatever is true. Whatever is true. 
And this, this true is not just um, a truth, but a, what is true in, 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 in thought, in, in disposition, in, in deed, in attitude. Uh, Paul exhorts these believers and all followers of Christ to con- continue to dwell on what is true. What is true? To what is he referring here with this word true? We can go many different, many different ways with the word true. I mean, you can think about Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? When Jesus is standing before him, well, what is truth? Well, I wish he was here and asking that question. We tell him what truth is, right? We're going to look here and we're going to see what is truth. Um, is, it, is, it, is it anything in this world that is true? Is that what he's talking about? Whatever is true, just anything? Or is he thinking about something more specific? Uh, since Paul desires these people to personally experience the peace of God, he cannot mean anything that is generally true. He's not talking about just any general truth out there. If that were the case, he would be calling them to dwell on their difficulty or on their difficult circumstances. Dwell on that. Because that's true, isn't it? They're in a difficult place. That is true. That's a truth, isn't it? We'd all agree with that. So if, it's, if he's saying to, to dwell on whatever is true, then dwell on your difficult circumstance. How does that ever work out? Not too good, does it? Because we've all done that, haven't we? He's telling us to do the exact opposite. Don't dwell on your difficult circumstance. He, he would also be calling them and us to possibly dwell on horrible things that were going on around them. It, it, it was true that these things were happening. There were horrible things going. Christians were being killed. Let's dwell on that. We're being persecuted. Let's dwell on that. There, there, there's this terrible sin going on in, in Philippi. Well, let's dwell on that. Obviously, it's true that's going on, but that's not what he's talking about. I mean, I just think about this. Consider the things that are going on with a few of the NFL players today. If you've been in any of the news, and please don't throw all the NFL out with those few players. There's a lot of godly guys in the NFL that really love Jesus, and they need our prayers, and they need to be able to minister to these guys that are struggling in certain areas of their life. But think about this. If, if, if the command is to dwell on whatever is true, then we're going to dwell on beating your wife, Going overboard, possibly, we're still the jury's still out, and, and disciplining your kids. Having sexual relationships with any woman you want, at any time, forcibly. We dwell, dwell on that. They're all true, right? That's true that that's happening. And, 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 and I just wanted to, to say this, just lovingly exhort, exhort you and exhort me. Why do we need to read every article on that? Why do we need to watch all the videos? I don't need to see a guy hitting his wife. I know that's wrong. I don't need that in my mind. And you don't either. Let's be honest. I don't need all the graphic details of what happened in this rape case. I don't need that. I don't need to click on the button to get more information on, I've got enough. I don't need to dwell on those things, even though they're true that they would happen. Obviously, Paul is not talking about just dwell on whatever is true at the moment. He's also not telling us to continue to just dwell on truths in general, meaning two plus two is four. I mean, that's a truth, but do we need to really dwell on that? I mean, it's something we learn early on, and we just know that. It's true. Just move on. We don't have to dwell on that. We don't, we don't have to dwell on that Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. I mean, it's true, but we don't need to dwell on that. Well, I mean, what difference is that really going to make? Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. 16th president. 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 I mean, did nothing for me. I know that. And you do too now. You know he's the 16th president. Uh, you know that, but what, that's not what Paul's talking about. 
how do these things that are true, the, the question is to ask, how do these things that are true, he's speaking of, bring us peace? Remember the context. That's the context. He's exhorting us and these believers to dwell on, to think on more specific things that are true. And Jesus sums up whatever is true that, the Paul, that Paul is speaking of here when he's praying to the Father in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what Paul's getting at. To dwell on the word of God. Whatever is true speaks about dwelling on the truth found in God's word. It's in God's word that we find out about the character of God. He's holy. He's loving. He's gracious. He's just. He's immutable, meaning he doesn't change. He, all the omnis, right? Omnipresent, omnipotent, faithful. Think about those. Just dwell on those for a little while. And then think about your circumstance. And I want to dwell on the fact that God is faithful. He is faithful. No temptation is overtaking you, but what is, which is common to man, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And God is faithful, it says. In the midst of this difficulty, temptation, trial, he is faithful. He won't allow you to go temptation beyond what you can bear, but with temptation, he will provide a way of escape that will bear, enable you to bear up under it. Because why? God is faithful. Man, I need to hear that. I need to hear that God is faithful. I need to dwell on that God is faithful. And we get that where from the Word of God as he reveals his character to us. And that's what Paul, James is trying to get, a, a, Paul is getting across here, is to whatever is true. That brings hope and peace and strength to our life. God's word also tells us true things about his promises. In Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. We need to dwell on the truth, this truth of these promises of God. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. Couldn't we go on and on? That's true. It's true about God. It's true about his character. It's true about what he promises. We dwell on that. We, we chew that over and over in the midst of our circumstances. God's word and contain, contains the truth that we are commanded in this passage to dwell on continually. Now, if this is going to happen, if we're going to dwell on these things, to dwell on whatever is true, we're going to have to spend a little time in the word of God, aren't we? Aren't we? Now, think about and just, just think about, maybe you have a hobby or think you something you're interested in. Think about this past week, how much time you spent reading about that certain thing. And maybe you, you didn't spend any time reading, but maybe some of you have. And you spent a lot of time reading on that and, and, and thinking about that. Maybe you haven't read anything, but you just thought about that a lot. I mean, it's football season, isn't it? And in football season, I think a lot about football. Not just because I play, but I got somebody playing. I enjoy the game, and I think a lot. Think about how much time we spend on those things. Now think about how much time we've dwelt on the Word of God, whatever is true. Think about that. Well, I don't have time to read the Word of God. Man, you better not say that real loudly, because that's just not true, is it? The truth is, in this area, is that we haven't made a priority. And if we're going to dwell on the Word of God. We've got to read it. We've got to study it. We've got to memorize it. We've got to talk about it with other people. We've got to sit around. We've got to think about it. Okay, what does the Word of God, what does it have to say about where I am right now? 
And that goes for every aspect of our life, right? Because the Word of God has something to say about every area of our life, no matter what. So the first thing which Paul commands these believers and all believers after them to dwell or think continually on is whatever is true. And, and this, this is, in a sense, kind of a, an overview of what comes after. Think about the things about what, what I said about God and about his characteristics. I, I said that God was, was he, he was, I didn't say this, but he's righteous, right? We'd say he's holy. Look down here, it says whatever is right and pure, lovely, good repute. Anything excellence, worthy of praise. Sounds like God to me, right? So this is kind of like an overarching whatever is true. And then he kind of further defines whatever is true. Here's whatever is true is. Right? Look with me. Whatever is honorable, or your translation may say noble, it means dignified, majestic, respectable. Something that's worthy of respect. To, 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 to dwell on those things, the things that are honorable in life. About the guy who's who, who, who with the Cincinnati Bengals, here's the NFL with the Cincinnati Bengals, his daughter has this rare form of cancer, and, and they released him. He didn't make the team, and they put him on the practice squad so he could still have insurance so his daughter could get treatment. Is that an honorable thing? You bet. I don't know if he knows the Lord. I don't know if the owner of the Cincinnati Bengals knows the Lord, but that's a lot different than other things, right? Things that are right and honorable here. Here it says it's worthy of our respect. Think about the, the, the things that God is using his people for right here in our midst to dwell on those things. And then, then the next one, it says, whatever is right. Uh, some translations say just. It's actually the word righteous. Right according to God's standard. As we understand God's word, we begin to understand God's standard in every area of life. And we're to dwell on those things. I, I just remember when I was at the University of Kentucky and they moved me from playing outside linebacker to tight end um, and I didn't like that that much but I just thought I'd make the best of it but I remember one particular coach he was a graduate assistant he would coach like this don't drop the ball but another coach would say hey catch the ball who was dwelling on what? one was, 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 was dwelling on the righteous standard of catching the ball the other person, they just never, it's always, don't drop it. I drop the ball, drop the ball. All right? And, and, and in a sense here, he's saying whatever God's righteous standard, dwell on that. Don't dwell on not God's righteous standard. What's not happening under God's righteous standard, to dwell on God's righteous standard. Next is whatever is pure. Um, your translation may say holy. It means holy in thought, or pure in thought, in purpose, in speech, in action, to dwell on those things. And, and if we're going to dwell on those things, we've got to be in the Word of God to see those things. And we've got to be around the people of God to, to witness those things so that we might dwell on them and think on those things. Then it says lovely. That means, it means pleasing, attractive to God and others. Beautiful. To dwell on those things about God, about His promises, about His people. To, to, to chew those over in our mind. And then the, 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 the uh, NASB, New American Standard, says the, of good repute. Uh, other translations say good report, com, uh, commendable, admirable. It, it means to highly regard. It means that the, the Word of God elevates our thoughts to hear. I don't know anything else that elevates our thoughts but the Word of God. Not down here, not in the gutter. Have you ever heard somebody say, 
Get your mind out of the gutter. Yeah, we need to get our mind out of the gutter. But the world is not going to tell us to get our mind out of the gutter. It's going to keep, hey, click on this link and see this video of what happened. And read this article. We've got more information about what this guy did. That's, say, put your mind in the gutter. And yet God calls us through Paul to dwell on these things. To dwell on what is a good report. What's commendable. Think up here. All these things we get again from God's word. And, and they all bring hope. They bring peace. Regardless of our situation or circumstance in life. Now, now notice what Paul says in, in, in the rest of verse 8 there. He says, if, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. But that phrase, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, the word if there, and, and just I don't want to go through all the grammar, it really means since. It says, if this is true, and it is, we've seen that often in the New Testament. It, this is true. So there, there are things that are excellent and, and worthy of praise. If there is, and since there are, um, and these two words here, excellence and worthy of praise, they sum up the list and catch anything else that's not mentioned. It's like he just gets going here, okay, whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and good repute. And he could have kept going. And he just said, well, if there's anything excellent and worthy of praise, dwell on those things. So he just make, keep making the list. Anything that falls under that category of excellence. Alistair Begg, um, he's a pastor in... in um, Cleveland. He's actually from Ireland originally. Um, uh, got a great radio ministry, tremendous teacher of the world. He, he says he's got a quite great question for us to ask about our thought life, about what our minds are dwelling on. Here's what he says. Is what I'm thinking about right now in line with God's approval and is it likely to be praiseworthy before men? Wow. What, 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 a, what a question. Is what I'm thinking about right now in line with God's approval? Is it likely to be praiseworthy before men? Let me put it another way. Is what I'm thinking right now worthy to put into a video and show on these two screens before all of you right now? Is what you're thinking of right now worthy, praiseworthy, and, and excellent so much so that you could put it on these two screens right now in a video, what's in your mind. And not just right now, but how about all throughout the day? And I can tell you right now, I don't want you all to see some of the things that go through my mind. And you don't want me to see some of the things that go through your mind either. We don't want to see that, but that's a question we've got to ask. And that's really what Paul's calling us to do. Think on these things, dwell on these things, so that, that in general, most of our life, we could put it up there. By the grace of God. God through Paul calls these empowered believers who are empowered by the Holy Spirit living in them to dwell on the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Now it takes effort on our parts to do that, doesn't it? To dwell on those things. The world's not going to help us out here, I promise you. Only God's word can help us here. To dwell on those kind of things. Now the Bible, let me make this clear, and we will see this tie in here calls us to dwell to think on things but it never calls us to think in a vacuum what do i mean by that i mean that that's all we do we just think we dwell we just think we dwell on these things we just think and, and it never comes out in our life the bible never teaches that instead it always links our thinking with our doing they go hand in hand you cannot separate these two our thinking and our doing are always linked together 
For instance, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now listen to this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may think what the will of God is. Is that what it says? Prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Prove. Do. Live it out. When your mind is transformed, your, your life will show it. It will come out. You can't get around this. What's in our mind, what we dwell on, what we think on, leads to doing. A transformed mind leads to a transformed life. Um, now look at verse 9 with me here in our passage. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And here's our second um, call to stand firm in this passage this morning. It's stand firm in your obedience or stand firm in your practice or stand firm in your doing. You can pick the word. They all mean the same. But to stand firm in your obedience and this call to stand firm in our obedience is linked to our call to stand firm in our thoughts. Look there at verse 9, the phrase, the things. You see that? The things beginning there in, in, in verse 9. Most of the translation begin with the things or whatever things. Um, and then even then it says practice these things. So the, the things or these things um, points back to these things in verse 8. You see the link there? Verse 9 to verse 8. The things. What things? Well, whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and good repute and anything excellent or praiseworthy. These are the things. He, and he says, these things, godly thinking that leads to godly behavior, the things, and then he, look what he says, that you learned and heard and have seen in me. Paul reminds them all these things they had learned from him through God's word and through his example, not perfectly, but through his example in the three visits he had made to the church of Philippi. He says, you want to know what that looks like? When you dwell on these kind of things, what it looks like in your life. Well, look what God did in my life. Now, as, remember, he tells us to follow him as he follows Christ, not follow him into sin. But he, he says, look, and you can see, what does that look like? It looks like the things you saw in my life when I came to visit you when we planted the church there, when I came two more times. And Paul says, that, what does he say to do with these things that they learned and received and heard from him? to practice, to do, to put into practice. And it's also a present active imperative. So not only is our dwelling on these things, our thought life, something we continually do, but we also put into practice what this thought life leads to, right? We put into practice all these things, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is just, whatever is true, whatever is of good repute, if anything excellent and praiseworthy. These things. He says, put those things into practice. Now let me remind you of this. I say this often around here because we don't want to miss this. What we do is not who we are. Let me make this clear. What we do is not who we are. You all should be able to say this, many of you, but by now. What we do is not who we are. Although, who we are has a tremendous impact on what we do. Okay? That's very important. We don't miss that. It flows from within. And it comes out. What we do is not who we are, but who we are has a tremendous impact on what we do. Our hearts and our minds are inseparably joined together. I mentioned this earlier. Inseparably joined together. So much so, so sometimes in Scripture, they're synonymous. The word mind and heart mean the same. Look, look what Jesus says in Mark 
7, 20 through 23. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that, which is, the, that, that is what defiles the man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. It's the heart is an issue. And what does, what does Paul call us to do in Philippians? Um, what, what does he say? What God's peace will do. It will guard our hearts and our minds. He links them together. You see, our thoughts, our minds fuel our hearts. That's the fuel for our hearts. What's sha- it's what shapes our hearts. Just we've been given a new heart, but God is still shaping our hearts as far as what comes out of our hearts. Our, our, our mind, our thoughts fuel our hearts. Now notice the promise for those whose hearts and minds dwell in what is excellent and worthy of praise, leading to a transformed life. Look there at, at the end of verse 9. We started with this, but we need to be reminded of this. The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. That's a promise. As we dwell on these things that are excellent and worthy of praise, the result is God's peace will be with us in a powerful and personal way. We will realize the peace of God in our life. That's a concern here for Paul. It should be a concern for us, right? Now think, if we are not dwelling on these things that are excellent and worthy of praise, and therefore are not living out the things that are excellent and worthy of praise, is there a lot of peace in our life? I don't know about you, there's not in mine. Not at all. There's not peace. Peace of God. Now, if you're a believer, you've trusted in Christ, you've you're been made right with Him by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God, and that will never change. He has taken you from a place of being an enemy, enemy and an intimate enmity with Him and put you in a place of favor. And you will always be in that, you'll be at peace with God. But you may not have the peace of God which is a moment-by-moment thing. As we dwell on things that are excellent and praiseworthy and live that out, there's this peace of God that comes. As we cast our cares on Him, we, we, we cry to Him in prayer because we're trusting Him as we pray through difficulty. The peace of God comes, this personal, powerful, present peace of God. Uh, let me make it before we move on here to, to the end. We always, we always, Live out of a state of favor with God. We don't earn the favor of God. Please understand that. We act out of those who have been given the favor of God, the grace of God, and then made right with Him. Now, we may not experience the, 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 that on a day-to-day basis, and that's our problem, but not God's, who are always at favor of Him. And when we blow it, it doesn't mean we're not in favor in the favor of God, in the grace of God. We haven't jumped out of that. We're still in the favor of God. But we just may not be at peace because we disappointed someone we love. Someone who gave his son to die for us that we might be brought into the favor of God by trusting in him. Well, God through Paul has exhorted us and these believers at Philippi um, based on our identity in Christ to, to do two things here in the, the verses 8 and 9. To stand firm in your thoughts which leads to standing firm in your obedience. So let me ask you this question. What are you doing to fuel 
your heart, your mind, your thoughts with the Word of God. What are you doing? It does. We get, we got to act. We got to move. We got to move. We got to do something, right? And we do. And God gives us the grace to do that, thankfully. But we, we got to do something. What are we doing there? Are we reading God's Word? Are we studying God's Word? Are we meditating on God's Word? Are we memorizing God's Word? Are we in life groups where we can talk to others about God's Word? Are we having one-on-one meetings with other believers so we can throw these, get these things going through our mind and, and so we can think on these things? Are we in other kind of small groups, whether it be men and women together? Um, let, me, let me ask this question. Um, what about the music that we listen to? Or the TV we watch? Or the movies that we place in front of ourselves? Now, I'm not saying that we can never watch something that has something that's not worthy of praise. But we need to look at it through the lens of God's word, right? And say, oh, that's wrong. That, that's right. That's wrong. Because it, it, we, we can walk out into the world <laughs> then. Because we see things all around us that are wrong and not worthy of praise, right? We have to look through it with the lens of Scripture to say, well, that's wrong. I need to pray for that. What lesson can I learn from that? All right? So please don't hear me saying you can never watch or listen to anything that we, we wouldn't be able to live. We'd have to go like this. We'd have to be the, the three monkeys, right? Hear no evil, see no evil, do no evil. I mean, we, just, we don't smell no evil, anything. It's just part of life. But, but what do you do with it then? That's my, what my question is. What do you do with the music? What do you do with the, 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 what you're reading? What do you do with the, the, the things that you see with your eyes? What do you do with those things? God would say to Paul to dwell on the things that are worthy of praise. Well, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life, um, makes no sense, or maybe it does make sense, and I'm going to try to do that the best I can. Well, let me tell you, if you don't know Christ, you won't be able to do it. You have no hope. And see, the issue is not the peace of God with you, it's the peace with God. And the Bible clearly says that God created us to bring Him glory. And it says that we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, right? We don't meet His standard. We don't glorify God like we were created to be to do. And then it says the wages of sin, the payment, what we deserve for our sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell which is a real place, can eternally separate from God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, sent Jesus to die in our place. To take on the sin, the, the, the penalty we deserve, which was this penalty of death, eternal separation from God, um, this, this, the hell that we deserve, God, Jesus took that payment upon himself as the perfect God-man. And then it says that we would trust in him, what he has done on our behalf, that he gives us his righteousness, he gives us a new heart, and we are at peace with God by trusting what Jesus did. That's the biggest issue in your life right now, not the peace of God, but the peace with God. You want to be at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And for all the rest of us who are at peace with God because we trust in what Christ has done for us, we are in a state of favor and grace with God. We need, to, we need that grace daily. We need the gospel daily. We need to be reminded we need Christ in our life, relying on him all the time so that we might dwell on these things. And then therefore, from that dwelling, by the grace of God, do those things for his glory and his honor.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you that you make it simple. This is not a hard um, teaching to understand. Lord, it's just a hard thing to put into practice if we try to do it on our own, if we try to do it in the flesh, if we try to do it like maybe we approach um, other things in our life. Lord, we need to cry out to God, to you, Lord, as we think about the, our lives and the circumstances we find ourselves in, the difficulties we find, and, and find, cry out to you, Lord, for the power to dwell on the things that are excellent and worthy of praise, so that, Lord, we might practice these things for your glory and honor. And Lord, you promise as we do this, as we dwell on these things, as we dwell on your greatness, your goodness, your love, your faithfulness, your sovereignty, the fact that, Lord, that you never change, Lord, that will bring peace to us. And as, as we practice those things, Lord, you promise that it will bring a, a, a peace to our lives. Lord, we need your peace. And we thank you for this promise that we can have it as we continually trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.